To thee, the champion leader, I thy servant ascribe thank offerings of victory. For from all terrors hast thou delivered me, and since thou hast that power, O Theotokos, from all dangers set me that I may cry out to Thee. Hi, my name is Matthew Bilisario. Welcome to the Catholic Champion Podcast. We're listening there to a track off of the Cycles of Grace CD by Father Apostolos Hill. Those are Byzantine hymns uh, from the Great Feast of the Church. And uh, it's really one of my favorite CDs that I like to listen to. It's a two-CD two set. You can get it on liturgica.com. And the name of the CD is Cycles of Grace by Father Apostolic Apostolos Hill. Today, I thought that would be a fitting opening to the podcast since we're going to be talking about the saints and the intercession of the saints. And I recently did a four-part series on my blog about the saints. And so today I want to talk about that. Now I did a four, as I said, I did a four-part series on the saints. The first one called Do Catholics Worship Saints? In that particular uh, article I talked about uh, the definition of worship in the English language and how it can mean uh, more than one thing. It can mean more than the worship that's due to God. I talked a little bit about that. In the second uh, article, I talked about uh, the title of it was Can the Saints Pray for Us? We looked at scripture passages there that uh, kind of clarified the fact uh, that the saints can pray for us, that, that people have, who have died before us in the light of Christ, can actually see what's going on and actually pray for us. Then I talked a little bit about St. Augustine in that particular article. In the last two articles, I looked at another Western saint, St. Jerome, and St. Basil, an Eastern saint. What I'd like to do is kind of summarize these four articles for you in this particular podcast. The first part talks about the definition of worship. Now, what I find so interesting is how Protestants insist on using the term worship as meaning only the worship that's due to God. This is a misconception. The term worship does not have to mean the worship that's only due to God. It can also mean to revere, to give reverence to, to adore, or to venerate. If we look at the definition in the Webster's Dictionary, it'll give all these different, different explanations, the definitions of the word Worship. Now, as we know, the Catholic Church has different Greek and Latin words to explain different types of worship. Uh, for instance, the dulia is is known as worship that's given to the saints, a veneration that's given to the saints. Hyperdulia is an elevated form of this particular veneration given to saints that's given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. Because she's the mother of God. So we give her a little higher type of honor. But it's not the worship that's due to God alone. In the Catholic Church, it's always called this uh, latria, which is actually the worship that's due to God alone. Now, many people confuse the term worship with latria, meaning that it can only mean worship due to God alone. And this is not the case. If we look at the term worship, it can take on many meanings. In the English language today, it can mean the reverent love and devotion uh, accorded to a deity or an idol or sacred object. And it can also refer to the ceremonies and prayers of religious forms. Um, it can also mean an ardent devotion or an adoration. Um, it can mean to honor and love as a deity. It can also mean to regard just with an ardent or adoring esteem or devotion. And then it has the synonym uh, revere. 
there. Now, if we move on and look at what the actual, there, there, there are many synonyms for the term worship, and revered is, is certainly one of them. But uh, the other synonyms would be, uh, all these terms would be revere or venerate, adore. Uh, revere suggests an awe coupled with a profound honor. Um, worship implies a reverent love and homage rendered to God. But it also can mean uh, a reverence accorded by a certain virtue. So, for instance, I venerate uh, the memory of my grandfather or the memory of my, uh, my mother or some other family member who has passed on, that uh, we have a deep love for them. And so we look at the term uh, revere to mean a, a profound honor or respect from somebody. Okay, And so when we give honor and worship to the saints, we're really just giving a high reverence for them. Uh, so worship for the saints, the best word to use in the English language would mean to venerate. Okay, And this would really just really give that meaning, uh, the, the, would really narrow down the definition of what type of worship we're giving to the saints. And it's not the same as the type of worship we give to God, the worship that is due to him alone. So and I think it's also important to realize that when we do give this honor and reverence and adoration to the saints, it's not entirely separated from God. In other words, we recognize that when we give worship and honor, this particular type of veneration to the saints, that God is behind it all, that we're actually giving also, we're giving God uh, honor by looking at how he has worked in the lives of the saints. And this gives us a, uh, really it motivates us as Catholics to, to live in Christ and to be as the saints were, to, to strive to uh, receive this grace of God, that we may be like the saints. And so when we look at the term worship, we have to make sure that we look at it in the correct context. And unfortunately, many uh, Protestants, most particularly, uh, I run across the Reformed brand on the internet in my dealings. I, I do uh, some apologetics things here or there. And as you may know, I go uh, over to a blog called The Thoughts of Francis Turretin. It's run by an anonymous, anonymous man named Turretin Fan. Uh, he doesn't want to reveal his his identity for some odd reason. Um, but the point I want to make here is we have to use the term worship in the proper context. And if we're, we're going to uh, be honest about this, we have to look at the what the church teaches. All the ancient church teaches, the Catholic and the Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox, they all talk about veneration of the saints, not giving them the same honor and worship that is due to God alone. Next, I want to take a look at uh, sacred scripture and see if it's probable that the saints can actually hear us. After all, if we're going to petition the saints in the liturgy or petition them ourselves and they can't even hear us, what good would that do? Uh, if they can't see what's going on down here and they can't intercede for us, it would be kind of pointless, no? So, after examining the term worship, now we look at scripture. The Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus clearly tells his followers that all who have departed in faith are still living. Uh, this seems to imply that those who have gone on, they're not in a state of sleep. They're not oblivious to what is going on in the body of Christ. We look at Luke 20. It says, now that the dead rise again, Moses also shooted the bush when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. That is Luke 20, 37, 38. So all those in the body of Christ are alive. All those who have gone on before us, who have died, are alive. We look to the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. We see many instances of those in heaven uh, worshiping God as we do here on earth. And what is very interesting, if you read the book of Revelation, is there are a lot of 
mystical language here that kind of uh, represents the divine liturgy here on earth that we have in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, the, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And we see many different passages come out of Scripture that are, of course, used in the, in, in the, in the Mass. But this particular uh, passage of Revelation 4 talks about uh, instances of those in heaven worshiping God as we do here on earth. And I think this is, this is interesting. It says, quote, Around about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats four and twenty ancients, sitting, clothed in white garments, and on their heads were crowns of gold. And they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of Almighty, God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. So there are these, these ancients that are praying before the throne. We can look at that, and although it doesn't say it is the saints, it gives us a... Uh, an explanation of what's going on in heaven that there's worship going on with God all the time in these ancients now who are these ancients there are those who uh, have gone on before us now in chapter 5 we see a clear reference to heaven where there is worship representative of the mass again and the use of incense where the prayers of the saints are presented before mighty God, almighty God this is a very uh, good passage to look at Rev, uh, this is the book of Revelation 5, 8 through 10. It says, quote, And when he had opened the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty ancients fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new article saying, a new canticle saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to take the book and to open the seals thereof, because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God in thy blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and has made us to our God a kingdom and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Again, the incense here represent the prayers of the saints uh, before Almighty God. So it would seem that the saints continue on petitioning and praying for the church in heaven. Now, it's well known that the ancient tradition of the Catholic Church uh, is to have relics of the saints put in the altars. And they're giving a certain veneration during the worship of the Mass. It is not in place of worshiping God, but it's an honor and veneration given to the saints. And this is was carried on from early Christianity because in the, in the catacombs, the early Christians celebrated the Holy Mass on the tombs of the martyrs. And so... As the first Christians in the catacombs worshipped on the relics of the martyrs, this carries over to the church when it comes out from under persecution. And they start to build these big churches, and they start to put the relics of the martyrs and saints in the altars. Now, if we look at the book of Revelation here, there's another particular passage, which again, uh, this is, is where the Christians get the idea from this, from these, these martyrs and, and the relics in the, in the, in the altar. It says, quote, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had, which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, dost thou not judge and revenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? That's Revelation 6, 9, and 10. These texts here give us an idea of that the, the relics of the martyrs are very important here. It's not an invention that was made out of thin air for the early Christians. And although uh, Scripture, as we know it with the New Testament, was ha probably hadn't even been written at this point, this is a testimony of Scripture to what the practice of the early, uh, of the early uh, Christians believed. In other words, the early Christians already had this in mind and were practicing it. And the book of Revelation uh, reveals this to us in a mystical way. Now, I want to move on because uh, this is really a, a consistent interpretation uh, of tradition in the church regarding the relics and the martyrs. And in the liturgies, its consistency is very clear. Uh, another, I think, important piece of scripture to look at is the transfiguration of Jesus. And this is Matthew 17, 3, where Jesus converses with Moses and Elias, who, of course, had died long ago. 
The text says, quote, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. And of course, the apostles witnessed this and gave testimony to this. Another example of the dead maybe not so far disconnected as we might think. In the book of Hebrews, we see St. Paul tell us that there is a great cloud of witnesses watching over us. Quote, And therefore we also, having so great a cloud of witnesses over our head, laying aside every weight and sin which surrounds us, let us run by patience to the fight proposed to us. That's Hebrews 12.1. Again, today in modern and our modern culture, we have this mentality that God is way up, way up, you know, in the heavens and kind of far away from us. And, and that those who die are completely severed off from those here on earth and so forth. And I think that's a, a problem in, in our, our modern culture. And we have to realize that we see things uh, when we're here on earth with a veil before our eyes, that we don't see what's uh, beyond this, this world. Uh, only every once in a while do we get a sneak peek into what lies beyond by some miracle or something that God may grant to one of the saints or something like that. Moving on in sacred scripture, the, we have to look at what the Protestants commonly use to refute Catholics in the veneration of saints. It's the text of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator of God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a redemption for all, a testimony in due times. However, has the Catholic Church ever said that the saints were stepping into uh, or, or the, the Catholic Church was putting the saints in this role as mediator of Christ. I don't think so. And I think for any anyone to make that claim is being very dishonest, saying that by the Catholics giving veneration to the saints, we're actually putting the saint in place of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself as our redemption. This would be a clear misrepresentation of the Catholic and Orthodox faith. The Catholic Church is not saying the saints are like Christ. They're not saying that the saints are the ones that have shed their blood for our salvation. We simply see the saints as our living brothers and sisters in Christ who are still living and able to pray for us. Just as we pray for each other on earth, there's no reason to believe that the saints can't pray for us just because we can't see them and why we cannot interact with them. So it's not a violation of the one mediatorship of Christ to ask for someone's prayers. Uh, and we'll see the saints, St. Augustine, we're going to see them deal with this particular particular uh, problem because they also, as we'll see with St. Augustine, we're going to look at him closely in the city of God, and he's going to address this particular topic by saying that, no, we don't give the same worship to the saints we give to God, but we do honor and we do revere them. What I find so amusing, though, with the Protestants, or many of them anyway, I shouldn't lump them all together, but what I find very amusing, especially from the Reformed folks, is they'll quote 1 Timothy uh, 2, 5 through 6, saying that we're somehow putting the saints in uh, Christ's role, which we're not. But they skip right over the verses that came before it. 1 Timothy 2, 1, what does it say? St. Paul says, I desire, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and or prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. So this is this is St. Paul saying we can intercede for people. It's not as if uh, when we intercede for others or people ask us to intercede for others, to pray for us, that we're stepping in Christ's shoes, that we're somehow violating this one mediation of Christ. Again, I think this is real dishonest for the Protestant to do. So I believe by looking at all these passages here that I pulled out of sacred scripture that it's reasonable to think that the saints are alive and that they can hear us and that they can pray for us and, and they can, uh, as, as we'll see when we look at the early church fathers, the, the early church fathers thought the same, that they could intercede for us and that many miracles have come about from the intercession of the saints. And of course, it's not done from their own power, but done uh, from God. Now, I want to look at the early Christians as witnesses and see if they if they also believed that the saints could intercede for us or if even we can ask the saints to intercede for us. So I wanted to stop and look at St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who wrote in 350 in his catechetical lectures. He says, quote, 
Then we commemorate also those who have fallen asleep before us, first patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, that at their prayers and intercessions, God would receive our petition. Interesting here. Then on behalf also of the Holy Fathers and Bishops who have fallen asleep before us, and in a word of all who in past years have fallen asleep among us, believing that it will be a very great benefit to the souls for whom the supplication is put up, while that holy and most awful sacrifice is set forth. End quote. So here, this commemoration that St. Uh, Cyril is talking about, of the com commemorations of those who have fallen asleep before us, that, they were, that he assumes that by this commemoration, that they're going to pray and intercede for us, and that God will receive uh, our petition by them. So it seems that this commemoration is, in a way, asking for their intercession. Now, St. Augustine and St. Jerome, likewise, address these particular topic. This is a particular topic of, of the veneration of the martyrs and the relics and so forth. So I want to look at, I'm going to get to St. Jerome a little later, and I'm going to look at St. Augustine very specifically because I want to uh, look at the city of God because as we know, the many Protestants use, love to use St. Augustine, especially the Reformed flavor, love to quote St. Augustine and use him to substantiate their beliefs. And many times they try to use him in opposition to the Catholic faith. And one particular person in mind is this Turton fan who in June put up a, a uh, particular uh, post talking about the worship uh, that's only given to God. Now, this particular post I just want to address here, and I'm going to ad address it in more detail here in a little bit. On June 26th, he put up a post called Prayers to God Alone and Worship to God Alone in General in the Early Church. And he, what he does is he, he does his typical cut-and-paste routine with the church fathers, which is something I really take issue with. Now, there's nothing wrong with quoting a, a church father, but when you go through and what many of these people do, they pull out like one or two sentences and they'll just go through like a litany and just cut and paste a bunch of things on there out of context. Instead of looking at the context of one particular quote and making sure that they're using it correctly, which most of the time they don't. So he put up this post and I noticed that St. Augustine was the very first one on the list. Now he put other people up like St. Leo the Great and St. John Chrysostom and St. Athanasius and St. Cyprian of Carthage and so forth. And sure, we could go through each one of these and and, and probably shoot down his argument on each one of them. But what I wanted, what really caught my attention was St. Augustine, because I'm fairly f familiar with a good portion of the City of God. It's a large work, so I won't say that I'm an expert on this entire thousand better page text. It's huge, uh, this work. But I'm, I was familiar with uh, Book 22 and and how, how St. Augustine talked about the the miracles that came about by the veneration of the relics and the martyrs. And so as soon as I saw that he had St. Augustine quote, uh, quoted up on this as if St. Augustine was saying, hey, you know, you, you, the, the worship's due to God alone and, and you, shouldn't, you can't, war, you can't uh, venerate the saints and this and that, uh, I knew that he was t taking St. Augustine out of context right away because either St. Augustine is contradicting himself later or he was talking about something completely different in what Turretin Fan quoted from the City of God. Here's a quote that Turretin Fan used, uh, to whom prayer should be addressed, right? And he says they should be addressed to God alone. And this particular quote by St. Augustine is basically saying we can't ask the saints for intercession. That's what he's implying here. It says, quote, St. Augustine speaking here, writing in his City of God, quote, As for the spirits who are good, and who are therefore not only immortal, but also blessed, and to whom they suppose we should give the title of gods, and offer worship and sacrifices for the sake of inheriting a future life, we shall by God's help endeavor in the following book to show that these spirits, call them by what name and ascribe to them what nature you will, desirous that religious worship be paid to God alone, by whom they were created and whose communications of himself to them they are blessed. Now, does this in any way even refer to the veneration of 
the saints. I don't think so. St. Augustine here is talking about worship and sacrifices. Of course, we know that St. Augustine believed in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. There's no question that uh, about that. And he's talking about a particular uh, context here of giving the title of gods. If you look, he says, In whom do they suppose we should give the title of gods and offer worship and sacrifices for the sake of inheriting a future life? So the saint veneration of saints is not falling into this particular uh, context here. He's just talking about, hey, we shouldn't be calling other people gods. We shouldn't be uh, elevating anybody up to being a god. And we shouldn't be offering worship and sacrifices to anybody else but God. And, of course, we don't. Even when we have the veneration of the relics and give honor to the saints and ask for the intercession during the divine liturgy, we are not offering worship and sacrifice as we do uh, to God. So this particular quote that he uses has been taken out of context. Very, uh, this is very clear here. Now, if we look and see what St. Augustine writes elsewhere, if you even look at the, uh, the Confessions, in book 9, and if you look at book 22, chapter 8 of the City of God, he talks about the relics being uh, venerated and people being healed by the veneration of the relics and the martyrs. I wanted to read one quote here from the Confessions, and he also repeats part of the story briefly in the City of God. This is about St. Ambrose, who had a vision given to him by God on where these particular bodies of two martyrs were. And if you'll, if you'll pay attention... What uh, St. Ambrose does here, and the Christians do, would be totally, uh, they would be totally attacked by Church and Fan and his buddies today because, after all, are they not committing idolatry by going digging up these relics and processing with them down to the church and having people uh, uh, yelling out, running with joy and carrying the relics and people being cured and everything else, this veneration that's going on. Let me read this to you from the Confessions. Quote, it was at that time, too, that you, God, revealed to your bishop Ambrose in a vision the place where the bodies of the martyrs, Protasius and Gervasius, were hidden. All these years you had preserved them incorrupt in your secret treasury so that when the time came you can bring them to light to thwart the fury of a woman. Justina, the mother of the emperor Valentinian, a mere woman, but one who ruled an empire. For after the bodies had been discovered and dug up, they were carried to Ambrose's Basilica with the honor that was due to them. On the way, several persons who were tormented by evil spirits were cured. For even the devils acknowledged the holy relics. But this was not all. There was also a man who had been blind for many years, a well-known figure in the city. He asked why the crowd was running with joy. And when they told him the reason, he leaped to his feet and begged his guide to lead him where the bodies lay. When he reached the place, he asked to be allowed to touch the bear with his handkerchief, for it was the bear of your saints, whose death is dear in your sight. No sooner had he done this and put the handkerchief to his eyes than his sight was restored. The news spread, your praises rang out loud and clear, and although this miracle did not convert the mind of your enemy, Justina, to sound beliefs, at least it restrained her from the madness of persecution. End quote. So here, St. Augustine is telling the story of how St. Ambrose of Milan, given this vision, goes, digs up the, these two, two bodies of the saints, incorrupt according to what St. Augustine here says. They process down with these bodies. People are leaping for joy, giving honor that's due to the, to the saints. And, and people are, the devil is driven away. People with the evil spirits were cured in a man who holds a handkerchief up to the bodies of the saints and puts it to his eyes, is healed of uh, his blindness. Now, if Turretinfan and his friends are going to be consistent, they're going to have to say that this was idolatry. Now, we move on. Chapter 8, City of God. Several, several different examples he gives of miracles that were brought by the veneration of the, Selix, uh, veneration of the relics and the saints and of the martyrs. Now, if you read the very beginning of chapter 8, he's going to tie these miracles that happen from the prayers of the saints or the miracles that come from the veneration of the relics. He's going to tie them directly back to our Lord. 
he goes in and he talks about the miracles of our Lord. And then he extends that on to the the uh, miracles that are attested to you by these, these the saints. He says, quote, the miracles were published that they might produce faith. And that the faith which they produced brought them into greater prominence. For they are read in congregations that they may be believed. And yet they would... Uh, would not be so read unless they were believed. For even now, miracles wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or by the prayers or relics of his saints, but they are not so brilliant and so conspicuous as to cause them to be published with such great glory as accompanied the former miracles. So he's merely saying that these same miracles are attributed to the Christ, and these miracles are done so that they may produce faith in other people. Now, he talks about, uh, again, the miracle in Milan that I just mentioned that he wrote about in his uh, confessions. He writes, he does a brief, he talks about it very quickly in, in chapter 8. But one particular thing I want to look at in chapter 8, and it's about halfway through the, the text, um, is about the 20 martyrs. Now, if you read through this, through chapter 8, St. Augustine is going to talk about the veneration of the relics, processions of people carrying the relics, people touching the relics, people going to the tombs of the martyrs being cured. And then what well, one has to ask, well, just by going and going to these tombs, is that the same as asking for their prayers? Well, implicitly, I would have to say yes. Why else would you go before the tombs to give honor if you uh, weren't in asking for their intercession? But in order to prove my point, we look at this particular text, which specifically shows a particular person asking or praying to the 20 martyrs. And in turn, he receives a miracle. And St. Augustine, again, attests to this very fact. So, quote, here is the story. There was a fellow townsman at ours at Hippo, Florentius, an old man, religious and poor, who supported himself as a tailor, having lost his coat. Not having means to buy another, he prayed to the twenty martyrs, who have a very celebrated memorial shrine in our town, begging in a distinct voice that he might be clothed. Some scoffing young men, who happened to be present, heard him and followed him with their sarcasm as he went away, as if he'd asked the martyrs for the fifty pence to buy a coat. But he, walking on in silence, saw on the shore a great fish, gasping, as if it just cast up, and having secured it with the good-natured assistance of the youths, he sold it, for curing to a cook of the name of Cartosus, a good Christian man, telling him how he had come by it, and receiving for it three hundred pence, which he laid out in wool, that his wife might exercise her skill upon and make a coat for him. But on cutting open the fish, the cook found a gold ring in its belly, and immediately, moved with compassion, and influenced too by religious fear, gave it up to the man, saying, See how the twenty martyrs have clothed you. Now it is quite clear that this Christian uh, who had, who had uh, bought the fish from Florentius believed in something uh, that, uh, about the martyrs or about praying to the saints because it, it appears that Florentius had told him the story and the Christian man gives him this money for this fish, but when he cuts it open, he sees this gold ring in its belly. And immediately it says he was moved with compassion, and he was influenced too by a religious fear. So he gives it to him, and then he says, See how the twenty martyrs have clothed you. So it is very clear that this, this man, Florentius, asked the twenty martyrs for intercession, asked for their help, and that they actually uh, listened to him and responded by not only giving him a fish which he could sell, but also a gold ring in its belly. So I think this is a, a clear example of uh, St. Augustine talking about this intercession of, of the saints and the petitions that we can give to the saints, our brothers and sisters in heaven, and that these things may come of it, miracles. And of course, we realize that the miracles are given to us by God through his saints, not by the saints' own power. St. Augustine continues on in chapter 8 and talks about more miracles. For example, a bishop bringing the relics of a martyr, Stephen. Um, he brings them in this uh, procession, if you will. And the bishop's carrying the relics, and a blind woman comes up, and she's 
she's cured by these relics. He goes on and on explaining, uh, telling about these different particular stories of the intercession of the saints, the martyrs, uh, praying at the relics of the martyrs. Uh, he says here that, that, that we can see that when people go before these these relics, that they're, they're praying. Uh, at Sippo, a Syrian called Bassius was praying at the relics of the same martyr for his daughter, was dangerously ill. Here we see again. Here he is petitioning. And, of course, his daughter, who is ill, is cured. Now, in chapters 9 and 10, those are worth reading. Chapter 9 is very short. St. Augustine once again affirms the Catholic teaching that the miracles which are done by the martyrs in the name of Christ testify to the faith which the martyrs had in Christ. So again, and they're not doing it under their own power. They're really testifying to, to our Lord. And that the martyrs who obtain the, mir the, who obtain the miracles uh, in order that the true God may be worshipped are worthy of much greater honor uh, than, say, uh, our uh, fellow men here on earth. So chapter 10, once again, take a look at that. It's going to explain this. Again, those two chapters aren't very long. But we're going to understand that St. Augustine here was not a, uh, an anti-saint type of guy. St. Augustine believed in the veneration of the martyrs, the relics of the martyrs and the saints. And I think to quote him out of context in another passage of the very, very same work is, is, is dishonest. And it really shows the... Uh, the what people will do, what they'll go, what, what level they'll stoop to to attack the Catholic Church. Now I want to move on and take a brief stop at the liturgy, because I believe that the divine liturgy is something that's often overlooked by Catholics in in, in the apologetics realm. In other words, we like to look at the Church Fathers and take quotes out here and do this and that, but we often don't look at the context of divine liturgy, the text of the divine liturgy, and the practices that went along with the divine liturgy throughout the centuries of the church. And a lot of times, I believe the liturgy holds the key, because remember, the scriptures were read in the divine liturgy for a long time before there was a printing press. People didn't have their own Bibles and walk around with them like we have today. Certainly, there were certain books that were circulated around, and some people had them, but it was very expensive to have uh, copies of the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament to have your own in, in your own library. So people generally heard the texts of the scriptures proclaimed in the divine liturgy. And so it's in that context that we have to understand uh, what's going on. Now, every documented liturgy that dates back to the ancient apostolic churches, can, they contain a commemoration of the saints. And they show a, a tribute and honor to the saints, and also prayer, prayers for the saints. Uh, for example, in the Proscomedia of the in the Eastern Church liturgy, uh, this is the uh, offering uh, that's done before the Divine Liturgy, the preparation, if you will. Uh, the Greek word uh, Proscomedia means offering. So it's it's uh, it gets its name, and it's an early Christian custom of people offering bread and wine and everything that was needed for the liturgy. So that there's a portion of bread, though, that is used for the veneration of the saints in the liturgy. And this is a quote from an Orthodox bishop, Alexander. He says, quote, From the second prospera, the priest cuts out one portion in honor of the Virgin Mary and places it on the right side of the lamb on the discos. From the third prospera, which is called that of the nine ranks, are taken nine portions in honor of the saints, John the forerunner and Baptist the prophets, the apostles, the hierarchs, the martyrs, the monastic saints, and the unmercenary physicians, the grandparents of Jesus, Joachim and Anna, the saint who is celebrated that day, the saint to whom the church is dedicated, and finally, the saint who composed the liturgy being celebrated, which would be like St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil. Continues, these portions are placed on the left side of the lamb. From the fourth prospera, portions are removed for the hierarchs, the priesthood, and all the living. From the fifth prosper, portions are taken for those Orthodox Christians who have reposed. End quote. So there are several parts of the, uh, the liturgy of the ancient church where the intercession of the saints is readily apparent. For example, in one antiphon of the divine liturgy reads, quote, Through the intercession 
of the Theotokos, Savior, save us. Anybody who's familiar with the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom knows those words well. And at the dismissal, the priest asked for the intercession of the Theotokos and the saints, quote, May Christ, our true God, through the intercession of his all-immaculate mother, of the holy and glorious apostles, of our Father among the saints, John Chrysostom, Archbishop of Constantinople, and all the saints, have mercy on us and save us, for he is good and the lover of mankind, end quote. These types of prayers to the saints are said in the proper worship of every ancient rite of the church. The only ones that don't have this are the Protestants. Now, I want to stop and talk about the lighting of candles again because a lot of times people will take this and uh, they think that just because you light a candle before a sacred image that you're committing idolatry. But what is the symbolism of the light and the candle before uh, the relics, the tombs of the martyrs, as St. Ambrose talks about, or the, the, tomb, or the, the, the tapers that are burning before the relics or before a, a holy image of the Theotokos? This symbolism really represents the light of Christ, very simply. Uh, it could be uh, the Holy Spirit shining through the saints, the fire of divine love of the Holy Spirit. It represents the, the light of God, the light of Christ. Tertullian in the second century wrote of the use of candles in the liturgy, and he said, quote, We never hold a service without, without candles. Yet we use them not just to dispel night's gloom. We also hold our services in daylight, but in order to represent by this Christ, the uncreated light. Without, warn we would in broad daylight wander as if in lost darkness. End quote. Of course, we know that we have candles that burn in the sanctuary near the tabernacle where our Lord is present. This identifies his presence as well. But the lighting of candles is not foreign to the ancient Christians. And remember, the Jews also included such symbolism in their liturgies. As we read in Exodus 40, quote, He set a candlestick also in the tabernacle of the testimony over against the table on the south side, placing the lamps in order according to the precept of the Lord. So the burning of candles before the uh, holy images is not uh, idolatry. It's just representing the fire of, of Christ, the light of Christ. Now I want to move on and talk about two other church fathers, one from the West and one from the East. Now, if you want an entertaining read from the church fathers, go online and look up St. Jerome's letter to Repartius. St. Jerome is writing back to Repartius. Repartius apparently has written St. Jerome because a man named Vigilantius was causing trouble for Christians who were venerating the relics and martyrs. I think the, this letter is just uh, is very interesting, and it's 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 a good read. It's not very long. But basically, uh, Vigilantius is attacking the Christians for venerating the relics of the saints, and what's readily apparent here is Saint Jerome is not happy about it. In fact, he seems like he's quite ticked over the whole thing. Now, I'm not going to go through every single. Uh, every single word in this letter, but I want to go through a few things here. So, St. Jerome uh, writes back to Repartius. He says, To Repartius, Now that I have received a letter from you, if I do not answer it, I shall be guilty of pride. And if I do not, if, no, if I do, I shall be guilty of rashness. For the matters concerning which you ask my opinion are such that they cannot either be spoken of or listened to without profanity. So here, St. Jerome is right from the get-go saying, you know, if I don't write, it's gonna, I'm going to be guilty of pride. If I do write, I'm going to be pretty rash about the whole thing because uh, I can't even speak about such things without profanity. So he is, uh, he's, he's quite upset. Now here he talks about Vigilantius. He continues on, he says, quote, You can tell me that Vigilantius, whose very name Wakeful is a contradiction, he ought rather to be described as sleepy, let me stop there for a second and just explain a little bit to you. Vigilantius also was known for sleeping through the prayer vigils at night. And he had a distaste for prayer vigils. And so uh, later on in the letter, uh, St. Jerome addresses this again. So that's what he's talking about when he says his very name, Vigilantius, means, you know, to be wakeful. It's a contradiction because he sleeps through uh, the vigils all the time. So again, he says, you tell me that Vigilantius 
has again opened his fetid lips and is pouring forth a torrent of filthy venom upon the relics of the holy martyrs. That he calls us who cherish them ashmongers and idolaters who pay homage to dead men's bones. Again, doesn't this sound very familiar? Uh, it's almost like St. Jerome could have been writing to Turton fan today saying, you know, here he is attacking us, attacking me, saying that, uh, you know, we cherish, you know, we cherish the uh, relics of, of these dead men's bones. And they're calling us uh, idolaters. And he calls this filthy venom. That's what he calls it. And I think we as Catholics, of course, should look at it the same way when, when uh, people outside the church attack us for such things. It just isn't true. Now, a little background in Vigilantius. He was a Christian from uh, Aquitania, which is modern-day France. And he is the opponent here. He is the one going against the veneration, uh, the veneration of relics. St. Jerome continues on. He says, quote, Unhappy wretch, to be wept over by all Christian men who sees not that in speaking, thus he makes himself one with the Samaritans and the Jews who hold dead bodies unclean and regard as defiled even vessels which have been in the same house with them, following the letter that killeth and not the spirit that giveth life. So St. Jerome is like, unhappy wretch. We should be weeping, weeping over this guy that's attacking, attacking us. Uh, St. Jerome here aligns him with the Jews, and it appears that Vigilantius was using the argument of the uncleanliness of dead bodies to, uh, to argue against the veneration of the saints, and these processions of the saints, and all this kind of thing. And St. Jerome revisits this throughout the, throughout the letter. He continues on, though. He says, well, he says, we, it is true, refuse to worship or adore. I say not the relics of the martyrs, but even the sun, moon, and the angels, and archangels, cherubim, and seraphim, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. For we may not serve creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Still, still, he says, we honor the relics of the martyrs, that we may adore him whose martyrs they are. So here, clearly, uh, St. Jerome is not equating the two. He is not equating the relic or, or the uh, honor and relic of the relics of the martyrs he's not he, equating that with the with the worship of god he's saying we don't worship and adore the relics like we do god and of course we as catholics say the exact same thing so here we say you know we, we can see saint jerome clearly stating that the veneration or honor they're giving to the saints here and the relics is not the same as worshiping god again context he continues on and explains. He says, We honor the servants that their honor may be reflected upon their Lord, who himself says, He that receiveth you receiveth me. I ask Vigilantius, Are the relics of Peter and Paul unclean? Was the body of Moses unclean, of which we are told that it was buried by the Lord himself? And do we, every time that we enter the basilicas of apostles and prophets and martyrs, pay homage to the shrines of idols? Are the tapers which burn before their tombs only tokens of idolatry? Again, here St. Jerome is saying the exact same, same thing that the, the Catholic Church says. No, this is not idolatry. No, burning tapers or candles before the tombs and before the relics is not idolatry. And he's saying that they do it. He's saying right here that they burn tapers before the tombs of the martyrs. Same thing as burning candles before the relics. No difference. We're going to see later on St. Basil endorses the veneration of uh, the images in the very same way of the saints. So St. Jerome here is also saying that their honor of the saints reflects the work of the Lord which is in them. Okay? And that which is, I said that earlier. That no, uh, we're not worshiping these saints as God, but when we do give them honor, we're also giving an honor to the Lord because we recognize the light that shines through the saints. Think of a stained glass window of one of the saints with the light shining through it. The light is not from the saint himself. The light comes from God through the window, so to speak. So again, Vigilantius using this argument apparently from the uncleanliness of the bodies from uh, the, the, the viewpoint of the Jews. St. Jerome uh, continues. And what he does here is interesting because he calls for the bishop of Vigilantius. He basically is saying, you know, Hey, I wish the bishop would come and tell this guy to shut up, shut this guy up. He says, quote, I am surprised that the reverend bishop in whose diocese he is said to be a presbyter acquiesces, acquiesces to uh, in this his mad preaching that he does not rather with an apostolic rod 
nay, with a rod of iron, shatter this useless vessel and deliver him for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved. So here we see St. Jerome pretty upset, calling for the bishop, please stop this guy. So you, you get the point here. Uh, St. Jerome, very blunt, very, very upset about this whole, this whole letter. He continues, if the relics of the martyrs are not worthy of honor, how come uh, is it that we read precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? Here, St. Jerome sees something in Psalm 116, kind of a prefigurement of the venerations that are going to be given to the relics, to the, to the martyrs, to the saints. Now, St. Jerome, finally, I'm, I'm going to skip on down towards the end of the letter, and here he is, uh, he's going to talk about Vigilantius again. Now, it's kind of uh, shocking to hear saints speaking in this uh, kind, of, kind of tone, but... Uh, uh, he justifies himself, but let's listen to what he has to say. He says, quote, The wretch's tongue should be cut out, or she should be put under treatment for insanity. As he does not know how to speak, he should learn to be silent. I have myself before now seen the monster and have done my best to bind the maniac with texts of scripture as Hippocrates binds his patients with chains. But he went away, he departed, he escaped, he broke out and taking refuge between the Adriatic and the Alps of King Cosius, declaimed in his turn against me, for all that a fool says must be regarded as mere noise and mouthing. I think this kind of says it all. He's basically saying, this man's insane. This man is a fool who says these things, who accuses people of, that, are, that are venerating these relics as being idolaters. He's calling them fools, and I, I, I totally concur. Um, now, he continues on. He says, quote, You may perhaps in, se in your secret thoughts find fault with me for thus assailing a man behind his back. I will frankly admit that my indignation overpowers me. I cannot listen with patience to such sacrilegious opinions. So here, St. Jerome is, is, is justifying himself, saying, you know, I can't even contain myself the, uh, against this, this vigilantius. One last particular quote I want, wanted to... Uh, to give you from this letter deals with vigilantius and the vigils. And I thought this was just interesting, not that it directly pertains to the veneration of relics, but because it shows what danger there is when you start abandoning the true faith. In other words, you start coming up, up with opinions that are contrary to the church. You start attacking the veneration of uh, the relics, the saints, the martyrs. What happens is you end up rejecting other important uh, aspects of the faith and part of it was prayer here because vigilantius hates the vigils so I want to quote what St. Jerome says about this and uh, kind of give you an idea again how perturbed he is he says this quote you tell me further that vigilantius execrates vigils in this surely he goes contrary to his name the wakeful one wishes to sleep and will not hearken to the savior's words what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in another place, a prophet sings, At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. We read also in the gospel how the Lord spent whole nights in prayer, and how the apostles, when they were shut up in prison, kept vigil all night long, singing their psalms until the earth quaked, and the keeper of the prison believed, and the magistrates and citizens were filled with terror. Paul says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same. In another place, he speaks of himself as in watchings often. Vigilantus may sleep if he pleases and may choke in his sleep, destroyed by the destroyer of Egypt and of the Egyptians. End quote. Quite, uh, quite uh, strong language there by St. Jerome. May he choke in his sleep. So, to me, Vigilantius really is just like the prototype for the reformers. Uh, he's kind of like, you know, the original model, so to speak, of those who would attack Christians for venerating the saints. And St. Jerome is not happy with it. And we as Catholics shouldn't be happy with it either. Now, uh, today, if you talk like St. Jerome talked, uh, they would just call you uh, uncharitable but that being said let us move on now 
to St. Basil of Caesarea. Now, St. Basil, of course, a father from the East, is one of my favorite church fathers. St. Basil of Caesarea from Cappadocia, which is now today uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He was a very influential uh, Christian in the 4th century. Of course, he's known for his strong Trinitarian uh, theology and also his uh, monastic tendencies. That will be for another talk, another, another podcast. I want to do another podcast on monasticism, so I will be working on that in the near future. Now, there's no question, as we have seen, that the early church fathers endorsed the, the, the veneration of the saints and their relics. We've examined St. Augustine and St. Jerome in the West. Now I want to go to the East and look at St. Basil. What is now known as letter 360 is very explicit in showing that this saint believed that you could ask the, prayer, the, the, the saints for intercession. I'm going to go through this entire letter. It's going to be very short, so don't fret. I know this uh, podcast is, is getting long, and we're at an hour almost here. So I'm going to finish up with this. Letter 360, I'm going to go through it very quickly here. It's very short. And it bears the title of, of the Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, the Invocation of Saints and Their Images. So there's going to be quite a bit of theology packed into this very, very short letter. He says, quote, According to the blameless faith of the Christians, which we have obtained from God, I confess and agree that I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, I adore and worship one God, the Three. A very strong Trinitarian, uh, uh, here, a, a very strong uh, Trinitarian mentality he displays here. And it's very similar uh, to the Nicene Creed here, this, this whole thing he's going to go through. It's very short. But it, it, it's really, uh, if you read the Nicene Creed, of course, you're going to see many of these, this element of the Trinity uh, displayed in that creed. He continues, I confess to the economy of the Son and the flesh, and that the Holy Mary, who gave birth to him according to the flesh, was mother of God. Again, another Catholic, uh, strong Catholic uh, theology here, the mother of God, the Theotokos. Of course, during this particular time, uh, the St. Basil and, and those around him were dealing with these controversies concerning the natures of Christ and the Trinity. And we know that St. Basil was a very, very strong uh, Orthodox uh, proponent of the Holy Trinity and the natures of Christ and the Mother of God. So here St. Basil confirms the, the use of the title, the Theotokos, the God-bearer or Mother of God. The next passage here is where the meat of the text that deals with the saints is. So listen closely. He says, quote, I acknowledge also the holy apostles, prophets, and martyrs, and I invoke them to the supplication to God that through them, that is through their mediation, the merciful God may be propitious to me and that a ransom may be made and given me for my sins. Very clear wording here. He acknowledges the holy apostles and martyrs that through them, he invokes them to supplication to God, that through them, through their mediation, again, is St. Basil putting them in Christ, in the place of Christ's mediation? Because that's what the reformer's going to have to say. He's going to have to take, this is the exact same thing the Catholic Church teaches. We're not putting the saints in place of Christ's mediation, and neither is St. Basil here. St. Basil says, through their mediation, very clear, the merciful God may be propitious to me, He's saying to me, and that a ransom may be made and given for my sins. Very clear wording here. St. Basil is saying that he can petition the saints for their supplications to God, and that through them, God may be merciful to him. Very clear, very, an Eastern father here that gives a clear uh, account. This is a very, very clear account that says that St. Basil, the early church, clearly believed in the veneration of the saints, that they could be um, asked to intercede for them. So, he continues, quote, Wherefore I honor and kiss the features of their images, insomuch as they have been handed down from the holy apostles and are not forbidden, but are in all of our churches, end quote. Again, do we see the images in the reformers' churches? I think not. John Calvin, one of the most ruthless iconoclasts the world has ever seen. 
Hmm, he didn't have that in his church, did he? Of course, he was a very ignorant man, a very uh, ignorant to the church fathers, although many of the reformers will, all, all, will claim that he was an expert in, in, in patristics. Uh, far from it. He, like, like they do today, took them out of context quite often. So wouldn't the Protestant today have to reject St. Basil here, kissing the images? Was he an idolater? St. Basil committing idolatry here? I don't think so. Once again, he's giving veneration to the saints. So here we have a beautiful testimony here to the ancient Christian faith. All the ancient churches practice this veneration. The Catholic Church, all the rites of the Catholic Church, East and West, all the Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox, uh, the Oriental Orthodox churches, they all had this apostolic practice of venerating and honoring the saints and the martyrs. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I hope to be doing, uh, hope to be doing another one on monasticism uh, in the future. I, I try to uh, every once in a while I'll put up a podcast like this, uh, just to hopefully help Catholics understand their faith better and to also motivate them to do more research on their own. Um, I thank you very much for listening, and may God bless and keep you.